Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. We're two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hey, Kieran. Hey, Eve. How's it going? It's going well. I just got my birthday tattoo, so... When I'm is excited. your birthday? It's later this week, right? Yeah, it's the twenty eighth. It's the, it's my golden birthday. I'm twenty eight on the twenty eighth. Happy birthday! That's and it's awesome. also like my ten year escape day anniversary. So it's oh my it's like, god! It's it feels been 10 like years thirty. Since then. I know. Yeah, I like <laughs> like this. This birthday has all the weight of like someone's thirtieth birthday usually does, except it's two years early, but. You guys, I, I've known Kieran since like way before this, so this just like feels really weird. That, how, I guess this means we, we've been friends for like uh, fifteen years at least. Yeah, fifteen, like yeah. thirteen, fifteen years somewhere in there. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> I feel old now. <laughs> this morning, I was I was coming to that realization, and I like went through my mind of how old all of my siblings were, and came to the conclusion that they have also aged a decade. Yeah, that's a really unfortunate <laughs> I was realization. Like, oh, shit, I'm old. Um, you ha- your escape story is so good. Which episode did we talk about that on? If in case we have new listeners and they want to catch up on that, I don't remember. Uh, Maybe it, it was, was our first one. Yeah, it, it might have been our first one. It was one of the earlier ones. We kind of like talk about it and allude to it throughout. Um, we'll figure. We'll figure out we'll which one out. it is and put a link in um, yeah. the story. Yeah, so it's we'll go back one. through the archives. You, and you'll put that blog post up because you, you yes. have a good story that you wrote up about it. Yes, I will. I'll put both of them. I've been sharing the one that I wrote five years ago. And then yesterday night, last night, last night, mm-hmm. uh, it was like <laughs> two in the morning. So time is weird. Um, I wrote this post as like a 10-year kind of reflection, not so much about like how how I got away and what made that happen, but about what's been fueling me since mm-hmm. and all of like kind of everything it means to actually be out for this long, which is nice. All of the, the righteous rage and vindication and also, you know, just like trying to prove to everybody that <laughs> it was worthwhile to like go through all of that and lose all your friends and family. Right. Multiple times. Like multiple times. Yeah. So fun. <laughs> yeah. It's great. It's fine. So speaking of losing friends and family, um, <laughs> that's a, this is a bad joke. Um, <laughs> my um, my thesis readings on Tuesday, and I think my mom might be trying to come. Oh, and a bunch of friends are going to try to come, and um, like Dean and Shepard and some other folks. And I'm just like, everybody's going to hate it. It's going to be terrible. I'm going to like get dry, have, you know, have a dry mouth and like not sound good or. I don't know. It's gonna no, be fine. It was, it's be gonna fine. be fine. I just need to decide which section from my thesis I'm gonna read. Yeah. Speaking of friends, we have a guest with us today. We have the illustrious Carmen. Um, I don't know if you want your last name on here or not. Oh, that's but. fine. We're gonna talk about where I work and what I do. So that's cool. Okay. So Carmen Green um, is another longtime friend of mine. Um, and we met when I moved to DC when I got married or around then. And um, we've been raising cane ever since. 
<laughs> so you want to talk about uh, who you are and what you what you do and why you're on our podcast? I'm I'm like so excited you're here because I've been wanting you to be on here for forever. We've been talking about this forever. We're like we Aww. need to get Carmen. You haven't been allowed to be on here, so I know. it's just been like this waiting game, and it's like yeah, hello, finally, finally, you're here. I'm a free woman. Um, so I am, I'm a lawyer. I work at an organization called Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Um, I've just returned from a stint in government, which is why my mouth was sealed and I couldn't be talking about anything like on this podcast. Uh, but I am out of government now and I am back into, uh, private practice and I'm happily, uh, raising cane, as Eve said, over at Americans United. And, um, I am on this podcast because I too grew up um, in the crazy world of fundamentalism, fundamentalism, uh, conservative extremism, and have made the path out a little differently than some people. I came through a place called Patrick Henry College, and then from there went on to Georgetown Law, and the rest was, as um, I suppose, history. Okay, so we've talked about Patrick Henry, or talked around Patrick Henry a whole bunch. Yeah. Um, I'm tentatively titling this this episode um, The Conspiracy is Real Part 2, because that's when we got into it last time, was the Conspiracy yes. is Real episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what is Patrick Henry, and why did you want to go there, and why did what do you feel about it now? Oh my! So Patrick, Henry, the short version, yes. <laughs> Patrick Henry <laughs> is um, affectionately known as God's Harvard. Um, it it okay. is founded to, and I quote the motto: "Lead the nation and shape the culture." Um, it was founded in 2000 by a man named Mike Ferris, who I don't know if he's been on the show before, probably has, like, been talked about on the show before. Oh, we've, we've talked about him. Yes, ah, yeah. he hasn't been here, though. He hasn't. Oh, we haven't well, personally you know, We haven't know. terrified him in person yet. Um, yes. You know, I can, like, give you his email address, and you can, like, invite him on, see what happens. Um, <laughs> it was founded in 2000 by uh, this uh, Mike Ferris, and um, it was really made to be a haven for homeschooled students. Like it was supposed to be a safe place to for parents to send their homeschooled kids. Wait, and wait, wait. Safe from what? Safe from secularism. Safe from the godless heathens that are at the Sexularism. Ivy Secularism? Secularism. How would you I say that, that word? Too. It's late, guys. No, no. I'm, I'm making a pun. I'm saying secularism. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. Like, you know, sex and rock and roll, all that kind of stuff. And um, uh, I mean, basically, I, if I had had normal life, I would have wanted to go to like some, you know, fancy, fancy school somewhere. But I was told that those schools were dangerous, that they would lead me to hell, they would cause me to lose my faith. And so if you wanted to go to a good school, you were told, uh, you have to go to PHC because PHC is like the Christian religious version of Harvard. You'll get a good education, but they won't make you a heathen. And it's not liberal like, you know, Liberty or Regent or any of those schools where you can date instead of court. Exactly. <laughs> where you, like you can Well, yeah, those other schools where you cannot be expelled if you court someone without your parents' written permission. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, when it was Liberals. founded... PHC uh, was pretty extreme in its like courtship requirements. They have, a and, and I'll say like that. I made that joke because that used to be a rule. Like you it actually was. had to, ha you had yeah. to have written yes. permission from my parent to yep. 
participate in romantic activities. Yes. And you would get hauled into the dean's office if they found out you were dating without that permission. There were whole mm-hmm. stories about the original dean who was first there when the school started and the punishments he would mete out if he caught you dating without your parents okaying it. I heard a rumor that um, Patrick Henry doesn't have any queer students. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a rumor started by Mike Ferris himself, remarkably enough. It happens to be extremely false, um, <laughs> and um, I don't think the administration can handle it to this day, but there's actually quite the underground of people who have both former and current who are like, hey, I'm here, I'm here, I'm queer, and I'm not going anywhere. Well, I'm glad you got out. How did you get into Georgetown after that? Like, that's a big leap. So the, it's not really a big leap when you think about how Patrick Henry talks to its students like we were all supposed to go to some fancy schmancy law school like they have students in harvard they have students in yale going to georgetown um i wasn't the first to get there and it was considered par for the course like Mm -hmm. their purpose is to create an army of soldiers to go out there and take over the world of politics and the law so you were supposed to just go to off to a fancy law school they have this big moot court program which is rare for undergrads. Usually you only do moot court in law school. But they have, PhD has this moot court program that wins more national titles by far than any other college in the country. Yeah. And that was something that they used to draw in people like me who wanted to go to law school. And then they use it to get you into fancy law schools. So I wouldn't say that my going to Georgetown was part of my getting out. It was more that once mm-hmm. I arrived... That was the first time in my life I had professors who didn't have an agenda to keep me seeped in fundamentalist teachings. It was the first Mm -hmm. time I was allowed to express real dissent in class without having any kind of repercussions. It was the first time I was in any place that had true academic freedom. And like, it's really hard to keep people within a box when you give them those kinds of freedoms. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll just I'll just give a, a quick anecdote, just a little side side story. Um, one of our mutual friends um, who went to PhD at the same time as Carmen um, took a gap year and did some traveling and came back and decided he was an atheist. And when he came back, he had to write this this paper for class that um, required a, a, like a personal faith portion. Um, where you, you you had to use your your Christian faith to reason through something or or some something like that. Um, I don't remember the details of the assignment, but he felt he couldn't write it without coming out as an atheist. And mm-hmm. when he did, he got kicked out. Yep. Um, because yeah. he was had signed a statement of faith to attend um, PHC, and because he was no longer a believer. He was no longer qualified to be a student there in their mm-hmm. eyes. Yep. They even kicked people out who are Catholic for the same reason. You signed a statement. I remember faith, that. No longer adhering to that one. So out you go. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's just a like for context what, what Carmen means in terms of like having that kind of system reinforced by the academic system. That's what it that's the kind of stuff you, you run into. I recently found my essays that I wrote when I was applying to PHC on my hard drive. Oh. And yeah, that was horrifying. Um, <laughs> I don't think I want to read mine. I think I'd be terrified. No. Yeah, I found it, my, it was my terrifying. City. I found my Grove City one. This is why Karen went looking for it. And my, my Grove City one was really bad. Yeah. 
Yeah, I wrote like three different essays for PHC because they required them. So there was like your statement of faith or like your faith and reasoning essay and like Mm -hmm. what you would give to PHC. And like there was another one. I don't remember what it was, but like that is part of the requirement to get into Patrick Henry. Also, at least it was when I was applying there where you had to write an entire essay about your faith and what you yeah. believed and like that was just like to even be accepted to the school so they try to like weed you out even before when i applied to phc they also had a um a document that you were supposed to submit where you recorded all of the books that you had read in high school oh That's yeah i had that book. too and i had read like some something like 350 books um and i remember my mom being like when did you have time to read all these? And I was like, when I was, you know, goofing off and not doing math. <laughs> but right. yeah, it's like it's just kind of this like very weird, like kind of application to get in. Yeah, I was surprised when that wasn't something that I had to do to get into like community college. <laughs> like, have, there was nothing. You, you there was have, none of you that. You have money, and you can you can coherently communicate. Cool, you're in. You don't even have to have money. If mm-hmm. it's your first time, you can just get Pell Grants and it's fine. Like, it's, it's oh, ridiculous. Oh, right. It's they, they, they're not against Title IX. I forgot about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Community colleges accept government money in any form that it comes in. Please, thanks. Okay. So that, like, kind of leads into my first question for Carmen because she's working at AU now and religious liberty is kind of her bread and butter. Um, and we all went to these schools that refused to, um, well, I mean, Kieran didn't, but Carmen I and I I applied. I tried. You applied. You tried. Um, <laughs> these schools that, that refused to be under Title IX under the grounds of religious liberty um, because right. they felt like it, it, it crossed a line and um, was too invasive and, and too um, burdensome. Right. So talk to me about religious liberty, religious freedom. How's your understanding of it changed from, you know, before and after you you left fundamentalism? Right. I mean, when I was um, first applying to law school and thinking I wanted to be a lawyer and all of these things, I wanted to be the religious fundamentalist version of a uh, constitutional lawyer out there fighting for religious freedom as Mike Ferris and company defined it. And for me, it was, oh, well, I need to have the freedom to live as I want to, which would include things like discrimination against persons who uh, had different religious beliefs than I did, specifically um, LGBT persons and persons um, who made uh, reproductive health choices that fundamentalists disagree with, all of that nature. Now, of course... Having gone through Georgetown, having seen the world, I realized that their description of religious freedom is extraordinarily coercive. It's my way or the highway. It's I don't want to follow this law that says I don't get to discriminate against people. So my religion should mean I get a free pass from this law. And you see this time and time again in, say, the bakery cases where a same-sex couple goes to a bakery and wants to buy a wedding cake and the baker says, nope, I'm not serving you, shows them the door because they are a same-sex couple, because they're LGBT. And the um, local non-discrimination ordinance 
says you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. A charge is brought against the store and then they fight it. And you have these religious liberty organizations taking it all the way to the Supreme Court saying religious freedom means you don't have to obey all these laws that everyone else has to obey. Okay, well, then that's kind of based on this idea that the Christians are persecuted. Right. That's kind of the the base motivation of all this. And I, you know, in my personal experience, I feel like they're very much not, they really, like, shove everybody else around a whole lot in, you know, public culture in the United States. Um... So what is what do you what do you see are, are Christians persecuted? Do they have any grounds to say that? Like what is what is your take on that? Well, what's when you're answering that question kind of my first thought is well which Christians are we talking about? I think we right. tend to forget that Christianity is full of uh, hundreds of denominations many of which most of which are in the United States, but somehow it's always like the extremists the conservative fundamentalists who are getting all of this media time and attention, bringing all these court cases. But you have Christians who may not believe that saying the Pledge of Allegiance is something that they can do according to their faith. You have Christians Mm -hmm. who believe that advocating for racial equality is required by their faith and therefore taking a knee at sporting events is required. You have all kinds of Christians. And so like, okay, are Christians discriminated against? I think some are probably because they're taking stands that the majority finds um, oppressive. But so like, some... so like conscientious objectors, conscientious objectors. and exactly. that kind of like, thing, yeah. But these are people who are not the ones that the common person might be thinking about as, okay, these are the ones who are oppressed. Like my organization, right. we will take on cases for prisoners who aren't being given the opportunities to worship in prison um, the way that they uh, want to. All these types of individuals can have their religious freedom uh, limited but it's not the things that you hear like um, ADF talking about. It's not the things you hear that the fundamentalist talking about. Their ideas of religious freedom is very much, there's this law that says I can't discriminate and I don't want to listen to that. Yeah. And so discrimination is like their idea of freedom. Right. Their right. idea is I get to treat people however I want, regardless of what a law might say about it. So before we get into ADF, um, how would you currently define religious freedom like right now if you had to give me a working definition that you know we're not we're not writing a brief here but just <laughs> for for you for your your plebeian friends um, what would be a working def i would define religious freedom as the ability to believe or not as you choose and the ability to worship or not as you choose and anytime worship or um involves an action anytime any kind of religious act is involved there's also the limitation of your religious observance can't inflict third-party harm harm that's so wildly different and by third-party harm it's just you know don't hurt anyone your right to swing your fist stops at your neighbor's face i remember Keep... learning that in team packs is that where well, that phrase learned... comes from that i learned it at back to dc the your right to swing your fist yeah because uh-huh. we were Wait, talking did, uh, about like personal liberties and such and not religious freedom, but like the, the boundaries between where where like your personal freedom inhibits someone else's personal freedom. 
Oh, so like Libertarian Limitations 101? Right. I never went to back to D.C., but I did go to Team Pact as well, so I might well have heard that phrase there. Now I'm traumatized. Thank you for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I did I did uh, win the presidency in back to D.C., which was shocking because I was a girl. So I'm wow. like still little sort did, of proud of that. Little did they know I that know. you weren't a girl. <laughs> I know. That's so great. <laughs> um, Carmen, I'm looking at our notes here okay. to see if there's anything else that we're missing. Um, okay, so like your your third party harm. What's the Do Not Harm Act? Oh, that's very interesting. So, um, but it kind of requires me to get a little nerdy. So I apologize ahead of time. So, Karen, just pop in and ask questions if you don't. If, yeah, like, I'll just, I'll just ex- ask you to. Like explain jargon. And I listen to Carmen yeah. talk about jargon all the time, so I'm like kind of caught up on some of this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So um, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, otherwise known as RIFRA, which is what I'm going to call it for the rest of this time, it's a federal statute that basically gives even greater protection to religious liberty than is found in the Constitution. And because it's a federal statute, it limits what the federal government can do. It has recently been interpreted by cases like Hobby Lobby versus Burwell to grant exemptions from a general law, kind of like what we were talking about before that the fundamentalists are looking for. Um, If the court finds that, oh, well, but this is a really big deal to your religious conscience, to your religious beliefs, that you not have to obey this law. So we're going to give you an out. In Hobby Lobby versus Burl, it was that the uh, Green family that owns the Hobby Lobby stores did not want to provide contraceptive um, insurance coverage to their employees, even though Obamacare required that that coverage be provided. They fought this. They said this violates our religious freedom under RIFRA, took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agreed with them and said, yes, you can't be required to provide contraceptive coverage. Um, that violates your your conscience. You don't think that contraception coverage is a good thing. So that requirement's gone. Right. The Do No Harm Act basically wants to uh, pull back the Supreme Court's case law on that and say, look, 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 how matter, no matter what the courts might think about RIFRA, they cannot interpret RIFRA in a way that would allow um, people to harm third parties. So it, it basically takes that no harm third party rule that I was talking about and enshrines it in the statute and says, yes. we have this rule now for RIFRA. It's going to cabin off Hobby Lobby forever and uh, for forever for the rest of, of time. That seems way better. It would be way better if we could get it passed. It's been introduced. I know it was introduced last Congress. I think it was also introduced the one before that. It has not yet been introduced in this one. So we'll just have to see what happens. Hmm. Is this like something that could be introduced at state levels? So it could because there are also state level RIFRAs. So there were there has been a movement to pass laws at the state level that mimics a federal RIFRA, and that has there are many, many states that have followed suit. Uh, Virginia, mm-hmm. the state I live in, um, has done that. And um, if you were to pass the Do No Harm Act at the state level, that would affect those state RIFRAs. It wouldn't affect the federal one. Right, yeah. Gotcha. And then, so what states... Do you know that have have done that already? That have passed the RIFRAs? 
Mm-hmm. Um, I do not have that off the top of my head, but we at Americans United have a project called um, the Love Thy Neighbor Project, which is a website that you can go to. And <laughs> we have a map up there where we actually lay out every single state that has these statutes. And another question from your notes here, you, you talk about freedom from ostracism and monuments. Um, do you want to get into that a little bit? Because, I mean, I'm in Virginia and the monuments, Confederate monuments are like in the news all the time. Okay. Um, <laughs> Which is, you know, unfortunate and right. very Virginia. It is. It is typical, typical Virginia in so many ways. Um, so... Freedom of religion has kind of like morphed over time, right? Like very early on, you had this very basic freedom of conscience idea, freedom from government preference idea in which the government can't force you to pay taxes to a church. The government can't force you who your minister is going to be. The government can't force you to attend church services. Fairly, fairly um, basic, although... I would say that the wall has been crumbling on even those limitations recently. But, you know, that's another conversation. Um, (laughs) Over time, our understanding of what freedom of religion means has grown to include things like you uh, shouldn't feel forced by the government to adhere to any religion or to adhere to the majority religion, even in ways that aren't as coercive as you're going to pay a tax or you're going to show up at this church service. So it can take the form as you don't have to um, submit to a public school teacher speaking a prayer. That is a prayer not of your religion. You don't have to submit to Bible classes in public school. That is um, not your religion. And also it includes monuments, say a nativity scene or a cross that are on government property. And the reason isn't because it's somehow coercive to have that monument there. The idea is that it's ostracizing to someone who is not of that religion. mm -hmm. It's not representative. It's not representative of them. It's not making them feel like they are fully part of the community. And so it's a quote unquote gentler type of coercion, but it's still a violation of your religious freedom. You shouldn't be made to feel an outsider like that. I feel like mm. there's some there's some way this could be used to take down Confederate monuments. <laughs> right. Those are ma- those are ma- those are maintained by the state or the city where where they are mm-hmm. most of the time. I don't know. Um, some smart person who's listening to this fix that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um. Kieran, do you have any other questions on this before we keep going? Mostly, like, to those of us who don't live in Virginia, what's with the monuments? Oh, like, God. <laughs> what, what's what's <laughs> going on with that? So there's, like, all of these... Um, there's all of these war memorials from the war between the states, as right, right. they would like to call it. Or the war uh, of northern aggression or whatever, whatever. Or the war of northern yeah. aggression... Jesus. Okay, so let me just like back up here and like we're gonna get we're gonna get like personal Eve history for a second here. I grew up in California in a primarily white community. The town I later learned was founded by um a guy who was probably a member of the KKK, was a white supremacist and was trying to create a white paradise. There were not very many black people in our town. I remember being shocked. I can remember like four, three or four incidents when I saw a black person in my town. We had tons of Hispanics, very few black people. Then we moved to Richmond. 
And um, and I had grown up listening to um, stories about California history, state history, about the missions, about the genocide of the natives. We like we were my mom was pretty good about making sure we got like California history and like got as as much as she was aware of. She gave us a pretty balanced um, education about like how awful like the mission culture was and how abusive they were to the natives. Um, so we we got like that kind of history lesson. And then we moved to <laughs> Virginia and I realized I knew nothing about the Civil War. Uh, and my oh. mom realized that she knew nothing about the Civil War. And it's because oh, no. California was, like, dealing with, like, all sorts of other shit when that was happening. Right. And they sent, I think, one regiment over to support the Union side. That's it. It was completely irrelevant. So we get to Virginia, and I'm 12, and suddenly we've got, like, people in church referring to it as the War of Northern Aggression. And we're just like, guys, this has been over for so long. Can't you just move on? This is racist. <laughs> and they're just like, oh, honey, you don't the understand. The South will rise again. No, no, they weren't. They weren't quite that over. They were like, oh, that's, it was that's actually good. about states' rights. You need to learn your history. So we're like, you know, in good faith, kind of open-minded. Like maybe right. there's something we really just missed. Like we thought of this was about slavery, and like, but like you know, we're from California. We really didn't learn this stuff. So like. We go, you know, we watch the the ten hour documentary, and we like read all these books, and and my mom, I just remember her like slamming down one of the, these like biographies. I think it was uh, probably Frederick Douglass, uh, and she just was like, "Nope, they're wrong." <laughs> good for her. And, and, uh, that's and so then, good. But on the flip side, she also then, you know, a couple of years later, put me in George Grant's like humanities program, and that guy. You know, oh teaches war of northern aggression bullshit, and uh, she didn't realize that he was, you know, that much of a, a flaming like southern revivalist. So she she was dealing with infant twins. She had no idea. Yeah. But that was where I got a, like round two of like, oh goodness, this is like serious stuff. They yeah. really, really, really believe it. That's mm-hmm. like. We're t- we've, we've been talking about that in my African-American history through film class for the last month as we've been doing like the the first films with black people and they were all about the Civil War and Birth of a Nation was like mm-hmm. sort of a groundbreaking film that changed and set the foundation for film as we know it today and it did mm-hmm. so by depicting like black people in the most ridiculous ways and by asserting outright that the civil war was because the federal government was overstepping its bounds and the Wilson White House watched this screened it treated it as fact and the entire country treated it as fact and I was like watching this thing and I was realizing oh shit that's where my like history books got that from yeah because is that's it, like is, that's, that's a the cartoon right sense. no it's a it's, it's a live okay. action black and white silent film oh man but wow. it's the first one that had like it's three hours long it had effects and like it was it was it introduced a bunch of stuff at the time that like a storyline it told a full story uh, Everything right, else right, before right. then was like fifteen minutes, so this yeah, was yeah, like yeah, it was huge. Just like if anyone yeah. has seen Black Klansman, that's the movie they are watching in that um, one scene when the Klan is meeting. 
Yes. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I mean, the monuments are a big deal in Richmond. It's the, you know, former capital of the Confederacy. We, my family's house is like only a couple miles away from the huge crater where there was this, the, the end of the Battle of Petersburg and the fall of Richmond happened. Um, I think they blew things up and it was just massive destruction. And there's all this like, um, I mean, God, like we grew up. I mean, I wasn't allowed to go to speech and debate properly, but I, I would show up for some of the, the events to, like, help time and stuff. Like, basically all they talked about during breaks was, like, arguing about the Civil War. Oh, basically like, at PHC, the only people, the only things people argued about was the Civil War and Calvinism. Yeah. Oh, my God, I mean, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of material to argue about, but, <laughs> um, I mean, it's a very complex piece of history, but... The, the the willingness of these these people to like lean into assuming the best of the white people so that they don't look like they're racist now because they're protecting their quote unquote heritage is just really bad. And so Richmond, like you take that and you you blast it out of uh, the fundamentalist circle, and that's just like the community is just seeped in that, like outside of these churches. And so the town is really, really not able to come to terms with, you know, the fact that they were, you know, a cap a national capital and they lost the war. And it was because, you know, they were inhumanely treating thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Um, and there's all of these monuments all over Richmond that should be taken down because they're, you know, two slaveholders and two generals who fought for the South. And, um, but the city won't take them down because, and it's like, it became one of the big issues when I was, um, you know, naively stumping for Northam because he had the best chance of winning as a Democrat. Um, he, like a lot of people, when I'd knock on the door to talk about, you know, have, have you heard of our Lord and Savior? you know, for, for future governor Northam, um, they would be like, yeah, well, he's, you know, he seems okay because I don't think he wants to take down the monument, so maybe I'll vote for him. Like, this is a big statewide issue, and it's ugly, and and it kind of, like, is the, I mean, it's shorthand for are you willing to um, own the fact that your family's heritage is racist or not? If you're for the monuments, you've not made your peace with that, and you're still racist as hell. Yeah, I remember, like, in when I was living in Atlanta, we had those monuments too, in in Savannah, uh, and like they're they're kind of just dotted all over the South, and it's ridiculous the amount of like fervor that goes into protecting that. It's and so that's you know that's the like the Flannery O'Connor line about the Christ, you know, the South is Christ haunted. It's also <laughs> civil war haunted. Right. And I, I kind of feel like there's, there's gotta be some way for, um, people to use that ostracization statute against the monuments because it is, it's polarizing because it's yeah dehumanizing. Yeah. Like it is literally ostracizing, um, you know, a large portion of the population who've never gotten reparations have never been treated well here. So, 
anyone who's listening and has ideas on how to make that happen. So that's Please a big sidebar. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like in the vein of people being very protective of historic things and using politics to keep it that way. How do like Christian fundamentalists use politics? Is there something like how how have you seen it used in like the courts and as a lawyer, I guess, since you've gone through Patrick Henry and all of that, is there a way that we haven't talked about yet or something that like you th- you think people are missing? Yeah, I think there's probably a lot that that people are missing. It's just that the conservative fundamentalists have a a very thorough plan. They are quite coordinated in how they will use politics in order to push the country in the direction that they want. Um, They very much understand that if you win the elections, you win the courts because state legislatures and state governors decide who are going to be sitting in the state judiciary, and then obviously the presidency and then the Senate at the federal level decides who is going to sit on the federal judiciary. And well, it's like the, the most like slow burning grassroots level on up long yeah. gone. Yeah. But it's brilliant. Um, and of course, I'm sitting here thinking, I don't want to give them the benefit of the fact that it's brilliant, but it is actually brilliant. It They've is. They've had yeah. decades of this attack. Yeah. So when did they when did they come up with this? When did they start this? Because this is like fairly recent. So I would within say within our lifetime, I would say that it started probably in the 70s. They've gotten really good at it in the last two decades. So it took a while for them, you know, to build the momentum, to build their organizations, to find their leadership. But once they did it, I mean, they've just been going all out ever since. And they talk to each other. The organizations provide a pretty united front on what they Mm -hmm. want. And they are willing to go after that slow burn victory. They're willing to fight to win the state legislatures, which they've done, and the state governors, which they've done, and the presidency, which they've done, in order to take over the courts. And then once you get a judge up there, especially on the federal system, it's life tenure. That person Mm -hmm. is going to be there for decades. And the Trump administration especially has been appointing very young judges. There is the most recent appointee to the Fourth Circuit. It's just in her mid-30s. She could be on that decade on that court for the next fifty years. Yeah, I, I what was it? The Moral Majority was founded in nineteen seventy something. Yeah, nineteen seventy six is what I was going to say. I think. Yeah, that right. I can't see. I can't see the card on my wall. I've got a, an entire timeline up here, but like I feel like it's been since the Moral Majority got together that mm-hmm. all of this has been put in place, and it's been this real slow crockpot kind of burn to get it going and now we're at full boil yes now they're really yeah. seeing the benefit of all those years of, of work and right. it's actually gotten to the point that as a civil rights lawyer now i start getting worried about okay what cases can i bring because i don't want to get a bad cast of judges and set bad precedent and actually set us back um mm, right. in the rights that we have so but then you're also sitting there thinking longer i wait the more trump appointees are going to be appointed so Maybe the time to go with these cases is now. And so you have a lot of organizations like Americans United, like ACLU, like these other uh, progressive liberal organizations that are really sitting here thinking, we're losing the judiciary. We've lost the Supreme Court. 
now we need to be really careful and not let bad bad precedent be set. It's something that affects me in my in my daily life all the time. So like if you are just an average Joe and you're not a lawyer, what can you do to like help organizations like you and help liberals fight this strategy? Because we're we're like thirty years behind. What are we what yeah. can we do? <laughs> Get involved. Um Winning state legislatures is actually a really big deal because that decides how your congressional districts are drawn and your congressional districts, the way they're drawn, if they're too gerrymandered, that's going to give too much power to one side or the other. And right now, it's very much favoring conservatives. Mm. Which, total sidebar, like Virginia's next election is going to decide redistricting for the next decade, if I'm not mistaken. So. This next election in Virginia is probably more significant to, like, presidential elections in the future beyond just 2020. Mm-hmm. So Virginia's uh. next election <laughs> is the biggest election for the next, like, five to eight years. And it's an off-year election. It's 2019. It's not 2020. People remember to vote. Uh, yeah, people yeah. are going to forget. Yeah. Anyway, we'll just hound if you're... People. We'll hound Sorry, people all, all year. Vote. <laughs> you have Sorry, to it's all about Virginia politics this time. Well, no, like that's that's the thing that I feel like people don't understand sometimes too is that like states like Virginia, for instance, are really key in federal politics as well. So, so what happens on the state level in every state because the governors also have a lot of power if they like work together, which. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is but why, like, like, it's such a, it's, I mean, as much as I personally really want Northam to step down, if, like, everybody, if that standard is upheld and everybody steps down, we're going to have, a, like, a really hard right Republican. Yeah. The governor's mansion, which I don't want, but is kind of the natural consequence of, like, the Democratic Party in Virginia not vetting this guy well enough and putting him in office. Yep. I remember when I lived in Atlanta, I was not in the same congressional district once in like the four years that I lived there. In the and same it, house. In, in the same house. I didn't move. My district moved <laughs> wow. four times. Like, yeah, I, I stayed in the same zip code, but my representative changed every single like year or at least every single election. It was ridiculous. I had to check every year to see which district I was in. It was different. And that and 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 that has like secured Georgia's ability to maintain a republican like uh legislature and governor is well, is like, just, just the like, sheer amount of redistricting mm-hmm. and and the outright corruption with all of the bullshit yeah the redistricting yeah. is just like taking all of its cues from redlining and being like oh this is fun no that is it is literally that is what it's doing yeah mm-hmm. All right, so you're at ADF. Oh, you're sorry, oh, you're not at ADF. You're at AAU. Goodness. Oh my! God. We didn't talk. Well, we didn't. We didn't introduce. I mean, we talked about ADF on this show before. Okay. But <laughs> sorry for insulting you. That was like the worst possible thing I could have ever said. I mean, the wine made me sleepy. We already talked about that earlier on our break. We were all like, "We're old. We can't drink wine. We get tired now." Um. So, Americans United is kind of the antithesis to ADF. Yes. And refresh our listeners about what ADF is and why we hate it so much. ADF is Alliance Defending Freedom, and they are the largest and most effective 
fundamentalist legal organization in the country. They are the ones that brought the Hobby Lobby case that I was talking about earlier. They bring um, the majority of the bakery and flower shop cases, those cases where the store owners don't want to serve same-sex couples. And they also do things like they, uh, they write model legislation that is anti-trans, is anti-LGBT um, rights, especially So they'll supply rights. that? They they'll supply that, that to legislators? Yes, they write the legislation, they do the research, they are good lawyers, they make it tight and foolproof for what they want, and then they give it to legislators who agree with them to have it passed. And they do that state after mm. state after state. Like um, They've done that in Alabama and Mississippi most recently, but it's all over the country, not just the South. And you've used the term with when we've talked about ADF before, you keep saying that they flood the courts. How many cases are they putting into action every year? I mean, most of these get dismissed, dismissed and not right. many of them make it very, very far up the chain. But a few of them do make it to the Supreme Court every year in the last few years. Yes. So how many are we talking about? I couldn't even give you a number because what ADF does is they have an army of lawyers themselves. You can just write into ADF, say, hi, I'm a lawyer. I'm barred in X day and I believe in your mission. And they will uh, give you a case or if you've already have a case, will help you out with it. This allows them. So they're all volunteers. It's a ton of volunteers. So they have oh. manpower across the entire country. And ADF only steps in itself it's, if it's an especially sexy case. Or if it gets to a certain level, they're like, okay, we'll take it from here. Okay, so can I ask a, a question that goes back to you and I were watching um, the Clinton affair yeah. um, a couple months back. Mm -hmm. And in the Clinton affair, we, we get Brett Kavanaugh and as like a young buck just out of law school um, and this team of lawyers that were working for um, what's his name, who's now the president at Baylor, who was the, yeah, Ken Starr, the Ken Starr investigation. Um, he had this like team of volunteer young lawyers mm -hmm. and Kavanaugh was on it and they were all like working over, over time all the time to like go through all of these documents to try to like find a way to pin Clinton with, with something impeachable. Mm -hmm. Um, is that kind of like where they they started this model? Have they been doing this longer than that? Like, I feel like because a lot of there's a lot of overlap in those names. Um, there is overlap in the organizations. Um, I believe ADF predated that. I want to say ADF was founded in the either late 80s or early 90s. It's okay. fairly it's fairly old. It has roots with the founding of HSLDA. There is some. Some, there are some common names between the two organizations. Well, Mike Ferris is now at ADF. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I want to say its roots are in the 80s. It might not have been a formal organization to the early 90s, though. Okay. I'm just trying to tie it into things that our listeners may have run into before so they kind of have an idea of what I mean, the would, legal community like. is fairly small. And then once you start, like, taking it down to like the Washington legal community and then the Washington conservative legal community, you take mm. taking it smaller and smaller. Everyone knows each other once you get into those areas. So it's not, right. it's not crazy to think that Brett Kavanaugh knows also these other players that we speak about here talking about fundamentalism. Um, they're, they're very small circles. And, and, yeah. and this is why like beyond the obvious reasons to be upset that he's on that bench 
Mm-hmm. Like we are personally invested in being offended about it <laughs> right, right. because we know who he knows and right. yeah. we really, really don't want them to have his ear. Right. And it wasn't yes. a, it wasn't um, odd or strange that Mike Ferris and Jerry Falwell Jr. were both at his investiture at the White House, his, I mean, Brett Kavanaugh's investiture. So, I mean, yeah. they all, it's all one group together working in concert. And if y'all don't know who Jerry Falwell Jr. is, um, Google his name and Pool Boy, and you'll find the greatest, funniest scandal in the last, you know, Didn't few minutes. Didn't we talk about that yeah, on an episode? T- I feel like we joked about it before. Um, yeah. But, Carmen, they, they talk about Liberty and in, in, in the Falwells a little bit, maybe. Sure. Liberty Council's on your, your Liberty notes, Council notes is, too. Um, like ADF, it is ADF's uh, little sibling that doesn't do as great a work but really tries. Um, so Liberty <laughs> University founded by Falwell senior, who started out as a preacher in Western Virginia, preaching for segregation, um, preaching that that is what God wanted. And he started founding Christian schools to replace the now desegregated public schools across Virginia, Christian, which we've talked about before mm-hmm. is like the kind of the rise of homeschooling and the rise yeah. of private Christian schools mm-hmm. were all about, white flight from segregated or desegregated public yeah. schools. Mm-hmm. So Liberty University was Falwell's um, project that he created to kind of similar to PHC, be a safe haven for those good Christian kids that don't want to be corrupted. And now those I good believe, Christian white kids. Yes. Um, I believe it may be the largest Christian university in the country. I know it has one of the largest online degree programs in the country. Right, because their enrollments, yeah. their enrollment numbers online are so high. Yes. I think that's why they are the largest mm-hmm. Christian university in the country. Yeah. It's massive. They have so they, much they have so much money. I live down the road from them, like not literally down the road. I live about an hour south. But like I will I will pass there on my way to like Richmond or Charlottesville or wherever because it's it's on the way. And you just like you're driving past that campus forever. Mm-hmm. Like I remember passing just on the, it on the train like from Lynchburg. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. And they're constantly doing construction. They have, like, um, obnoxious, like, well, like well signal things, like mm-hmm. an indoor ski-, ski slope that's maintained year-round. They've got all of these, like, what? gizmos and doodads on campus wow. that are just, like, they're rolling in money. And yeah. they're just, like, constantly building new new toys because they, they have so much money to throw around. Um, and that's what part of why they're always able to bring in like the big name Republican nominees for um, presidency to like speak. And you know, Trump's visited there many times and been part of chapel services. So mm-hmm. yeah, they have a lot of money to throw around. And part of what they throw money at is Liberty Council, which is also one of these organizations that goes around bringing cases, saying we don't want to serve same-sex couples or what have you, whatever is the case of the day for them. Um, so what are some other, what are some cases that we should be aware of that maybe didn't get covered in the news that make really change the landscape of religious freedom discussions? I mean, we talked about Masterpiece already. Well, we talked about... Which is the cake shop. Right. So that's, I think those are really some of the, the biggest cases. Um, Hobby Lobby versus Burl, which I mentioned before talking about RIFRA, mm-hmm. was really the case that blew open the door for RIFRA and made it so that people could say, well, my religion says I shouldn't have to obey this law and courts would suddenly take it seriously. It's because of that mm-hmm. case, which was about three or four years old. 
following that, there was another case still about the Obamacare contraception mandate, the requirement that your employer provide contraception insurance coverage. And that case is Little Sisters of the Poor versus Burwell. And that case was basically, um, you had this uh, nonprofit organization, Little Sisters of the Poor, it's a Catholic organization. Um, Under Obamacare, they were already granted an exemption. They didn't need to provide uh, contraception insurance coverage for their employees. But they didn't like the method that that religious exemption was given to them. There were regulations that said, okay, if you sign this form, you tell us you have a religious, you have a religious belief against contraception coverage, uh, you send that in to us, and then we will make sure, we the government, will make sure that you get contraception, your employees get contraception coverage access differently. Basically, what would happen is the employees would all be given a different insurance card, and that insurance card would provide them with specifically the contraception coverage, and there would be no payment from the employer Mm -hmm. to cover that. And that was something just the government required insurance companies to do. Well, Little Hmm. Sisters of the Poor and a whole bunch of other nonprofits all over the country um, orchestrated by ADF to file a lawsuit in almost every single circuit court in the country about to challenge this regulation and say, we shouldn't even have to fill out this form and send it in to tell you about our religious exemption because if we fill out that form, that triggers you providing contraception access to our employees, and that violates our religious beliefs. And you're keeping a database of people who are practicing conservative religious practices, and that's not fair. <laughs> they wanted right. to just make sure that there was no way on earth that their employees could have access to, to medication that they just didn't believe in. And mm-hmm. um, the case felt frustrated. Very frustrating. I mean, I remember litigating against those cases a couple years ago and just feeling, come on, you're not even being fair now. Like, okay, you don't want to provide contraception coverage or, okay, you don't believe in contraceptions. Just don't take contraceptions yourself. Just take the win. Right. Take Hobby Lobby. But why are you trying to also require that no one can get contraception access you're forcing people to adhere to your beliefs but if anyone else had tried that on you you would fucking lose your shit (laughs) the hypocrisy was just sometimes more than i could handle day by day yeah it went all the way up to the supreme court after most of those circuit courts of appeals were like basically laughed at him and said are you kidding me no this 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 doesn't violate your religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. And they just kept appealing it. They kept appealing it and went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court punted. They refused to actually decide. And instead they said, you know what? Y'all are fighting a lot. But it sounds like there's some give going on here on the Obama administration's part. So we want you guys to all go back to the table and figure out something that's going to make everyone happy. The Supreme Court did that. Oh, that's so bossy. Wow. And then the administration changed. So what do you think hmm. happened? Oh. No solution was found. There is no solution found. In fact, yeah. of course, the Trump administration, under the leadership of Jeff Sessions, the um, attorney general, just decided, no, of course, no one should have to provide any contraceptive. No one should even right. have to do what Little Sisters of the Poor didn't want to do. So yeah. is Little Sisters of the Poor versus Burwell like considered closed, or is it still something that's in play? At this point, I would say that it's closed because the administration has changed and they no longer want to fight. As, as in, the administration has changed and said, yes, you win, little sisters of the poor. We're not going to force you to do anything. 
originally it, right. it was Little Sisters of the Poor versus Burwell, which was the Obama administration's um, mm, secretary gotcha. of um, HHS. So, gotcha. Elections have consequences, people. Yeah. Okay, and then so talk about AU. I mean, I, I, I when I tell people in my my friend circle what you do, I, I say it's kind of like ACLU, but for religious focused issues. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. What we do is we take um, cases dealing with either the Establishment Clause or the Free Exercise Clause. So basically, anytime you have religion and government intersecting, we're probably going to be involved in that. Most of our work is uh, actually focused on public schools. We have a lot of public uh, education litigation. So if your child is being forced to... um, submit to religious teaching in a public school, we would take those cases. And we actually had a really big one out of Louisiana very recently that we settled uh, favorably on behalf of our clients. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what is the Establishment Clause for our listeners, if they don't know? So the Establishment Clause is the part of the First Amendment that just is it's basically the separation of church and state part of it, that you will have no laws uh, establishing a religion. And we typically... Um, interpret that to mean you can't have government favoring one religion over another. Um, you can't have government forcing someone to adhere to certain religious precepts. You can't have the government telling you what to believe. Um, mm-hmm. So kind of the free exercise clause and the establishment clause are two sides of the same coin. So the free exercise clause is like your rights to do stuff and the establishment clause is what the government can't do to force you to do stuff. We also um, do a lot of work for all the denial of service cases. Those are all the cases where you have a shop owner saying they don't want to serve someone because of their religious beliefs. Um, We'll do, um, we were very involved in all the contraception mandate cases because Mm -hmm. people were using their religious beliefs to say, we don't have to obey this law. And something that's really unique about Americans United that I really appreciate about it is that we are one of the very few organizations that provides legal services in this area, but also does it from the vantage point of um, persons of faith who believe very strongly in religious freedom as we're defining religious freedom. Mm -hmm. Um, We partner with uh, Christian groups, Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, all these different persons of faith who truly believe that their religion is most preserved and most protected when government is kept as far away from it as possible. And so Mm -hmm. they want the separation of church Um, and state in order to um, preserve their religious freedom. And I really appreciate that we, we work with faith groups specifically. I really appreciate that about us. Yeah, that's really, really cool. I want to ask you about Madonna versus HHS because we've talked about that case a lot recently, and I think it's a really important um, case in, in regard to like some of these right. um, situations where you see um, adoption happening across faith um, and families trying to like help kids get out of the foster care system and all this stuff. Right. So probably a lot of your listeners oh heard God. about, because this came up in the news, but South Carolina um, has this very large, largest in the state, foster care organization that does not want to place children with anyone other than evangelical Protestants. 
They are a private organization that has contracted with the state to take foster children and place them with various families. Is this organization like directly associated with Bob Jones University or are they separate? As far as I know, they are separate. They're located in the same town, Uh, but as far as I know, they are actually separate organizations. Oh my God. Now, typically, if you're taking government money like that, you're contracting to provide a government service, essentially, you can't be discriminating on the basis of religion or any other Mm -hmm. protected characteristic. But the governor of South Carolina petitioned the Trump administration for an exemption for that rule. Basically, again, an exemption from a general law that usually everyone has to obey. And the Trump administration gave them that exemption and said, sure, if your religious beliefs say you get to discriminate, you get to discriminate. Oh, goodness. So we brought a lawsuit on behalf of a Catholic woman, um, Mrs. Madonna, of the Madonna versus HHS case name, who attempted to foster children from this organization in Greenville, South Carolina, and they turned her away because when they asked her for a recommendation from her pastor, she said, well, I don't have that, but I have a recommendation from my priest. And their response was, <laughs> well, we don't, we don't do Catholics. And she got turned away. Oh, man, the Catholic phobia is really intense in the evangelical community. Oh. It can be. It also surprises me how many people are still surprised by it. Um, how many people I'll talk to this case, I'll talk about this case with them and they'll say, really? They're still discriminating against Catholics? And I say, yes. Yes, actually they do. Actually they do. Okay, so this is kind of far out there and Kieran, I, I keep, I don't know if you have any questions if you want to jump in, but um, so the, the Hart family we, we've talked to about them before. This is these lesbian moms, conservative Christians, um, who adopted a bunch of black kids and moved from state to state to avoid detection from CPS about how they were not feeding the kids enough and, and abusing them. Um, one of their sons, um, his photo went viral when um, they showed up at a Black Lives Matter protest in, I believe, Seattle. <laughs> and um, forced him to hug a police officer because they were with the Blue Lives Matter counter-protest. And then they drove their van off a cliff and killed themselves and all their kids. Um, a couple of the, one of the bodies is still missing, Devante, the, the one who they made hug the cop, which in that picture he's crying because he's so scared of the cop, which is really one of the most heartbreaking things about it, that whole story to me. Anyway, so there's this podcast that's been going on um, covering the story, and they they really don't get into some of the the issues that concern you know us at CRHE about the malnourishment and the abuse factors as much as as we'd like. And they're kind of like, look at these nice you know Christian homeschool moms who were trying to do this nice thing, and like, but parenting and adoption is really hard. And like, wow, there's just it's so tragic that they like couldn't hack it. I mean, that's kind of the point that they make and it's that's it's absurdly sympathetic and kind of weirdly victim blamey mm. anyway that's that's a whole other thing um but yeah. like in that kind of situation like if they hadn't killed their kids and they had kept running from cps mm-hmm. would they have been able to use their religious beliefs right. about like well we believe in spanking the kids and punishing them this way because we're christians would they have been able to use that to like protect their abuse? It's a difficult question to answer. It depends on what state they are in. 
It also depends on how good their lawyer is. Um, but could they try? Yes. And have people tried? Yes. Um, there have certainly been cases of abuse where people have said, well, my religion requires me to treat my children this way. Um, it is rare still for that to survive in court. What I do not mm. think is rare is for people to look the other way and therefore it never gets to court because people say that. For instance... Because people will agree that it is a religious freedom issue. Right. I mean, and they'll never question it. Every Almost every court case requires someone stepping up and saying, hey, this is going on and it's wrong. And you uh-huh. were asking earlier, what could people do to help like my work at AU? And well, really big thing is calling us up and telling us what you see. Actually yeah. making a phone call and saying uh, this is not okay is a huge is a huge deal. And so for so many people, they'll see abuse or they'll talk to someone about it and then the whole, well, it's their religious right to hit their kids or what have you comes up. And for many people, they drop it at that. Yeah. Falsely mm-hmm. thinking possibly that um, that would be the end of it when it doesn't have to be at all. It really doesn't. Karen, do you have any other questions? Yeah, it reminded me of like when I when I left and when I started writing about things, some uh, like adults who I knew as a child reached back out to me and were like, oh, my God, I knew something was wrong, but I had no idea what to do. Mm-hmm. And and I was like, it took me being an adult and telling you about it like you saw it. You saw that it was wrong. You could have said something then. And I feel like that's the thing that happens, though, is mm-hmm. is people see these other parents and they assume that every other parent is like them who like wants the best for their kids. And they see parents being abusive and they're like, well, I'm sure they've got it under control. I'm here to tell you that is not the fucking case. If you see something going on, like do what you can to keep yourself and the children safe, but do something. Yeah, it's 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 really. Um, I mean, this is one one thing I talk talk to adults about a lot is I don't think most adults know how to recognize signs of abuse, and so yeah. even a lot of mandatory reporters. Um, may not be aware that either they're mandatory reporters or what to look for and what to report. And so I think it's really it's really nice. I went through a really good um, – Carmen was with me when I, I stopped by earlier this week to visit my old church and say hi to my old pastor in, in Chevy Chase, Maryland, um, on the border in D.C. And they're an Episcopalian church, and they had a really thorough um, – like abuse prevention and abuse awareness training that all children's ministry workers had to participate in before you could set foot in Sunday school. Oh my God. And it was like three weeks long. It was thorough. It was managed by a social worker. It was really good. Uh, And it's mandatory in Episcopal churches. That's amazing. It's like there's own, it's their own special curriculum. It's really good. And I just remember being like so upset when I was in that because I I was just like, I have been teaching Sunday school since I was 14. Yeah. And I was never given any of this stuff. And I was teaching Sunday school since I was 14, which meant I was a mandatory reporter since I was 14. Mm. Even though I was a child, even though I was a minor, but I was in that role. I was, and I should, like, you know, Virginia's states, you know, the may be I wasn't, but like, 
in theory, like, I should have been. Like, if I'm teaching children in some capacity, I am a mandatory reporter. Like, even if the law doesn't necessarily codify that, you should know what to look for. And so I think it's really important, like, if you are interacting with kids on a regular basis, you should take the time to go and look up one of those trainings. I'm sure they, like, exist on YouTube. Just go, like, put yourself through the modules and, like, learn how to recognize signs of abuse and, like, where to report it to in your state and what it is, you know, that you should be doing if you need to, if you're in a situation where you need to take next steps on that. Yeah. And then call Carmen. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please. You see something. Tell us. Yeah, it's just, it's just really, it's far more common than we know. It's, I mean, it really, truly, like... I feel like the two biggest social issues, and I'm leaving capitalism out of that because I feel like that's a little bit more nuanced. The two biggest social issues that I think are facing this country right now are racism and how it's it's systematically institutionalized into our country. And two, it's um, child abuse. Because children don't have rights here, and, and we're raising these generations... You don't understand consent and all this stuff. And I mean, it's getting getting better slowly, but. And like HSLDA is going out there and preventing us from adopting like UN Rights of the Child Act and all of these things. Like there are our own background has been part of the fight in keeping children's rights from being a thing that's been realized in the U.S., which is ridiculous. Right. I mean, that's kind of like why we're all doing what we're doing in our various capacities because, like, we know that we were used as pawns in this chess match to get them further. And I want to push back on that because I'm sorry I didn't consent to that. I was a kid. (laughs) Yep. Yep. I I did not have a choice. I didn't understand it. Well, Carmen, thank you for joining us. I know this has been a long episode. Dear listeners, thank you for sticking it out. But um, this is important stuff. And if you want to listen to like the, the precursor to this conversation, it's um, The Conspiracy is Real, part one. Yeah, we can go back and edit the part in there. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't realize we were going to get so lucky to have Carmen on. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for having me on. It was great. And again, anyone's interested in what AU does, we have a website and all the information about all of our cases is up there. Yeah. Yes, we will post that in the show notes. But Carmen, what is the address for people who are listening? Oh, we just got a new website. You're like, what is that? <laughs> oh, it's w- so much right it's now. It's www.au.org. Great. Oh, that's easy. Okay, cool. Um, and if so someone needs to, out. if someone wants to contact you to let them, you let you know about a, a potential case or to uh, ask you for legal advice or something, where do they find you? How how do they reach you? How do they There's support you? There's actually work? a form on the website that you can fill out, and um, we really do check that inbox. And um, if you say specifically, "Hey, I heard Carmen, and I want to talk to her," um, I will get that message. Yay! Awesome! Yay! Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, guys, if you haven't joined our Patreon yet, you had better do that. Um, we will start releasing um, more exclusive material on there this spring as we go go forward. Some, you know, after dark episodes where we're inebriated of some kind and hanging out and making jokes, maybe watching VeggieTales, maybe singing silly songs. You never know. Um, <laughs> it's been known to happen before. It's been known to happen before. We're going to have a live ep- episode at some point next month. Um, I will probably throw up a live stream on that when I go out to San Francisco 
in Oakland to see Kieran and some other folks. And um, where is our Patreon? Our Patreon is Kitchen Table Cult. So just yeah, it's patreon.com forward slash Kitchen Table Cult. It's on our website, which is kitchentablecult.com. Go there. You'll find everything. Yeah. Even There's just $5 a month will help. Our Twitters, our uh, Mastodons, because Twitter is bullshit. Um, <laughs> Some of us are not on Twitters. Yeah. And uh, we have a contact page on there, so send us your questions if you have questions. Uh, who does the music, which is so lovely? Okay, so the album is Stenazzo by The Heavens. And the track is Janet. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. Bye.